Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vector, where we discuss topics, trends, and insights driving the global space ecosystem. I am your host, Kelly Keita Zogborn, and today's discussion is all about the space economy, its current value, the industry sustaining it, the influences changing it, and how you can become part of it. Joining me in today's discussion are three professionals whose work centers around these very topics. First, we have Leslie Kahn, who has led research and analysis at the Space Foundation since 2019. As Director of Research and Digital Programming, she leads a team that produces the Quarterly Space Report, its accompanying data and digital content, as well as digital programming, such as the Space Matters series and space investment analysis. Prior to joining Space Foundation, she worked as an editor and writer at Gulfstream Aerospace. Next, we have Brendan Rousseau, who is a teaching fellow at Harvard Business School, where he researches and lectures about the business and economics of space, and he is also a consultant with the U.S. Space Force. Previously, he has supported space policy creation on Capitol Hill and conducted astronomical research. And then last, we have Matt Weinzerl, who currently serves as Senior Associate Dean and Chair of the MBA program at Harvard Business School, and is the Joseph and Jacqueline Elbling Professor of Business Administration in the Business, Government, and International Economy Unit at Harvard Business School, and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. His research focuses on the optimal design of economic policy, and in particular taxation, with an emphasis on better understanding the philosophic principles underlying policy choices. Recently, he has launched a set of research projects focused on the commercialization of the space sector and its economic implications. And we will link to that research in the chat after this conversation. I wanna thank you three for joining me today for what I know will absolutely be an engaging and thought-provoking conversation. Good morning, thank you for having us. Great. Well, this conversation is really timely because it comes on the heels of a very large announcement by the Space Foundation in our most recent uh, space report, where we unveiled the new space economy number for 2022, which clocked in at $546 billion, which is an increase from its um, 2021 total by 8, 8%. And what's interesting about this is that we saw growth across the board, um, but it also has a lot of implications, not for current industry players and investors, but for entrepreneurs and other individuals that want to give into this space. And so that's really what I want to dive into today and get your opinions on as we segment through this conversation in different aspects. And really to start us off, Leslie, I want you to help us level set and create a bit of a framework for thinking. And could you tell us a bit about the sectors that you saw driving this growth? So really what were the main contributors to this 8% increase and any other key observations that you saw um, in the quantification of this? Absolutely, thank you so much. So what has remained true um, as has been the case over the last several years is that the commercial space economy in particular is broadening and deepening, it still accounts for about 78% of the global space economy as we evaluate it. But what is still a, an important support structure, I believe, in the overall global space economy is that government funding. That um, in 2022, 
accounted for about $119 billion. So again, as as we've all come to realize that the, the government is good at really the big ideas and providing that initial infusion of cash and the really the support structure that's needed um, as some new enterprises are taking off. But increasingly what we're seeing is that as that structure has been in place, we're seeing more startups. We're seeing a diversification, certainly across, um, you know, the number of companies that are capable of launching just what we've seen in the last 10 years. So I think that is one important aspect. Um, Satellite communications, ground stations and support equipment that all ties into that network that is still the behemoth in the room. That's about $165 billion. But we're also seeing, again, um, a, a very burgeoning um, sector that would be human spaceflight, human space tourism. Um, this was really the first year that, that it even kind of showed up as more than a blip on the radar. So again, that kind of covers the whole spectrum. You have decades-long sectors in ground stations. Um, Certainly what we saw in positioning, navigation, and timing is a big chunk of that. But on another note, I think what we're also seeing is just an increased diversification that not only more companies, but more governments around the world are recognizing the value of being a player in space. And I think Matt and Brendan and some of the work they've done in the last couple of years, they certainly can speak to the entrepreneurial nature of the new space economy. Yeah, those are all extremely wonderful points. And I think it was really poignant for you to to dissect rather that there are these burgeoning aspects that people think about. um, And collectively, you know, when people think about space, they automatically go to satellites and rockets. But really, a lot of this this space growth is rooted in these really tangible, like hardware type systems with broadband and telecommunications and things that we take for granted as being part of space and an enabler of space, but are ubiquitous all around us. Uh, Matt, Brendan, I don't know if you wanted to touch upon anything that Leslie said and expand upon it. Sure, I can jump in and Brendan, you know, obviously feel free next. Um, I think uh, Leslie made some really great points. And, and one thing that I think is always really important when we talk about space economy data, which maybe I should have put quotes around, because yeah. uh, there's always a question of what we're defining. We have to be you know, optimistic and figure out the real sources of growth. And we also have to be really transparent and careful that we're not like boosterish, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think with top line numbers, it's super interesting. So the growth of about 8% last year, that sounds like a super big number, you have to be a little careful because inflation was basically 8% in 2022. So like in real terms, the growth rate of the space economy was pretty moderate. And that's really what we've seen over the last decade, which will probably surprise a lot of your listeners and viewers, because those of us attracted to space tend to focus on the areas that are growing really fast. Mm-hmm. And there are those areas. And, and so I think the way you pitch the conversation is just right, which is that at the very top line, the space economy's real growth has been fine, but not that extravagant over the last decade or so. But there are these pieces, whether it's manufacturing or satellite constellations, or, you know, we didn't talk yet about Earth observation, but things like those where you can see really dramatic uh, increases and a lot of startup activity. 
And so I do, I also like to dig in there and I'll just make one other point because I'm an economist and we can't help ourselves. Once you start adjusting for prices, you actually find something really surprising, which is that, you know, obviously when you adjust for inflation, it tends to make the nominal rates look a little high. So you, the real rates tend to be lower, except within the subsectors that are growing, uh, prices are coming down and quality is going up. So if anything, when you adjust for those things, the, the faster growing sectors turn out to be even faster growing sectors, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it all the more optimistic for those of us interested in this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, uh, I agree with everything that's been said. I think that typically when people look at the space economy, they fall into one of two categories. Either they are super optimistic, it's growing super fast and it's going to be the best thing ever, or they're super pessimistic saying all these numbers are fake and you know, there's so-called zombie statistics of, of things that are not really real. I think one of the great things about reading this report, especially the way that we're digging into the numbers um, below just the top line numbers, that neither of those narratives is, is fully true. I think, yes, there is a ton to be optimistic about. Um, one number that really jumped out at me from the report was that 81% of uh, the uh, countries that were included in uh, the report increased their space funding, um, many of them significantly uh, there were 100 countries, um, or uh, excuse me, there were uh, 100 organizations and 30 countries that contributed to some kind of satellite uh, project over the past year. Like those are signs of real progress, real change. Um, but there's also uh, numbers that I think obfuscate what's really going on. We often point to the huge number of satellites that's increasing. If you just pull out SpaceX from that number, uh, the trend looks completely different. Um, and that goes for revenue and everything else as well. So I'm super excited. Um, I, I think that there's been so much progress and change, um, but the story is, is a lot more interesting, I think, when we do exactly what we're doing now, which is peel below those top line numbers and say, okay, what's really going on? Where's the difference really being made? Um, and um, work in uh, a little bit more analysis, like the kind of that I do uh, be most helpful. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point because I think that the excitement and the enthusiasm and the hype around the, the industry and ecosystem is, is really critical because it what gets people to self-select in eventually and say, okay, I want to be part of it. But it's then creating that tangibility and the practical insertion point about where the opportunity actually is. And Matt and Leslie, you, you touched upon something on different sides that I think was really interesting. So Leslie, you talked just about the global aspect of this. And I know that, um, I, I believe the numbers are now that there's about 80-ish government space agencies, but 92 countries that are operating in space. And to your point about um, these sort of nascent space players that are realizing that space is a pathway. And if you're not first, you're last and creating, you know, space offices that might have one or two people out of their trade commissions, but it still is very critical because creating some sort of strategy starting with their localities bring to bear bring to bear also what the industries they have that already exist and how you can scale from there is really what i'm starting to see kind of come across the board and it's exciting because i do think it opens up more opportunities for people in these countries and also globally that maybe didn't think space was for them absolutely and i think one of the things we're seeing um in africa in latin america especially is that as these much smaller nations and programs recognize the need to be involved in space, they are collaborating and sharing resources and networking. So it's a real multiplier. Yeah. You know, obviously the United States, ESA, um, 
massive sort of legacy type programs. Uh, you know, you, you can't disregard what what Russia has done accomplish wise, accomplishments wise. But um, really interesting to see that um, those are just two examples of smaller nations really recognizing the need and the potential to be in space. Yeah, and if I could, I'll just build on that because I think not only is that a really important dynamic that's sort of globalization of interest in space at the public sector level, but something that we talk a lot about with companies and with students and, and various folks in the sector too, is the similar sort of pattern within normal companies. Yeah. So Leslie, I like very much how you put it that, you know, or maybe Kelly, I think you put it this way, that that they're opening up these offices. Maybe they only have one or two people, right? And they're, yeah. and they're actually responsible for it. And maybe that's the same for companies, right? So a lot of, you know, take your average Fortune 500 company, they don't spend much time thinking about space. If they can even have one or two people really starting to think, how could this matter for our company? You get this similar domino effect in the private sector where it just becomes a matter of course that you're starting to think about these things and then the connections across companies, across business models start to become apparent. And that's that for me would be a huge step forward if we could get everybody into the conversation. Yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've encountered some folks before from emerging, emerging companies, but also from existing industries or really established companies that want to think about space. And I've had conversations with them and I'm like, great, let's connect with your team. And they're like, well, I'm it. Like I'm the one charged and I'm like, well, that's fantastic, right? At least as a, as a new P&L and a new market opportunity, that strategy is starting to be put in place and that space is a consideration. Brendan, I, I, I know that you were kind of looking to jump in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with everything that's been said. I think that's one of the most fundamental changes that we've seen um, in this transition from a fully government um, enterprise to one that's a little bit more of a balance between commercial and government is that now... Uh, commercial companies that are revenue seeking, that are trying to not only do exciting things in space, but profit from them, they have a real strong incentive to make products and services that appeal to these customers. I feel like the, the more that these products advance and things like Starlink or Earth observation data become increasingly useful and, and visible to these companies, our job as advocates for the space industry or people who are helping to raise uh, awareness gets a lot easier because they're starting to say, wait a minute, that, you know, I've heard about my, my competition is starting to uh, get interested in this. What's really going on in space? And for us, uh, all that we have to do is show them some of the data and say, look, it, the growth rate here is, is amazing. Um, and, and you really should be paying attention, um, at least watching what's going on if you're not ready to jump in. So. That's one of the most exciting things, I think, of, of our roles. Yeah. Well, let, and let's dive into some of this segmentation for a second, because, you know, we talked about framework and where we are. We also talked about trends. But if we could go a bit deeper, and Matt, I'm going to toss this to you to you first. So you did mention off the bat inflation, which is a really critical aspect to touch upon because it's it's very real in our everyday lives and also in space. But have you observed any other trends um, in terms of larger company structures, so the way that companies have had to think about doing business with the government or doing business with um, maybe smaller players to be able to offer new capabilities for the growth and the opportunity coming about in space. Well, this won't surprise any of your listeners, but of course they're having to become a lot more nimble and agile and innovative and stand up little skunk works within them to try to respond in more creative and, and nimble ways. Um, I think that one 
Uh, it's an excellent question. I was actually thinking along a very different line, but I'll let me try to uh, mention one thing that I think Brendan and I have been noticing, which I'm curious how it will play out. It definitely has implications for smaller companies and maybe for the larger ones, which is if you think about one of the things that has characterized the rise of SpaceX and it's often talked about is their emphasis on vertical integration and all the yeah. all the efficiencies that come with bringing in-house what had been a very uh, perhaps too far uh, specialized uh, supply chain. And that bore incredible fruit for the sector and helped bring down costs quite a bit. And I think there's a number of companies following in SpaceX's wake. The interesting thing is that you know, industries go through life cycles and as they develop, the value of specialization is a real thing. Yes. <laughs> and so it, what, one thing we're seeing a lot of, especially among startups, but that I'm sure connects to the larger legacy companies that you're speaking about is how do you fit into uh, the supply chain, the overall ecosystem in a way that can contribute specific value? Uh, and maybe there's more opportunities like that coming down uh, the pike than we've seen in the past even five, 10 years when integration has been really the name of the game. Yeah, and just to add on that, one kind of macro trend that I see um, among commercial space companies today is that they tend to fall into one of two categories. There's the larger um, like entrepreneurial space companies that are vertically integrating more and more every day, and they seem to be just like just that space companies where if you want to do something in space, they will take you from A to Z. Um, so that's one set of uh, companies. And then some of the younger companies that we see um, are really specialized where they often they're founded by people who come from the industry. They've been working on a specific set of problems and pain points. And they say, man, we can push the industry so much further if we've just got much better at doing this. Uh, I'll cite uh, Apex for satellite buses, for example. Um, so those are it's, it's interesting kind of push and pull where on one side, bigger players vertically integrating more and more. And then the other side, you've got specialization emerging. And then you throw in the primes in the background and it makes for a whole interesting uh, mix here. Um, but it makes it, uh, it, it keeps me busy uh, following uh, everything that's going on. Yeah, no, it, it's a perfect point. And I, um, I have a couple of questions from the chat that are still on this sort of macro theme of scaling and, and trends within the space ecosystem. And then after this, I do want to dive into more of kind of this public-private partnership, U.S. government's role, vertical integration type piece. Um, so the first question is about a topic we hear all the time about workforce. Um, so they are asking, you know, what are the challenges with this topic and how are people dealing with these now and what do we need to start doing um, moving forward to make sure that growth is not slowed by a lack of workforce options? I'm I do think that is really a leading conversation within the industry itself, that there is such concern about trying to meet that demand. There's um, a lot of recruiting, trying to um, entice employees from one agency to another. Um, certainly one other aspect of that is for NASA, especially the aging out of the workforce. One of the things that we uh, talked with NASA officials about earlier this year is when Artemis did launch, um, you know, that, that first launch, the, one of the fallouts of that, yay, it was successful, but a number of NASA employees had been holding out. They wanted that milestone end cap to their career. And so there was a flurry of several hundred 
notifications of resignation. So I, I think that is very much the conversation going on. Um, the, the type of programs that, that Space Foundation um, conducts is certainly one small part of what is happening to try to correct that. The Workforce 2030 Challenge, where you have industry leaders saying, we will address this. Um, I think also right now, and Matt and Brendan can speak to this in much more detail, but right now, certainly as labor pool is a challenge, the wages that are being paid are so much better on average when you compare that is an enticement. Yeah, and I'll sound a slight note of optimism here, perhaps, on the workforce side, which is, and it, it's mostly from my experience working with students, uh, and that is that the generation coming up in their 20s, uh, there's at least two factors that give me some optimism. One is that the number of folks in that age group who have STEM training and particularly engineering training just keeps expanding by leaps and bounds. I mean, it's incredible. It's actually engineering is the number one undergraduate major for Harvard Business School students, which might surprise most people. But uh, yeah. And, um, and then the second thing is Brendan and I have seen an amazing increase in interest in the space sector among business school students just over the last five years, such that, and I think one of the sources of that, which we as an industry and, and those who care about this industry can really push on, which is that a lot of really tech-savvy, forward-thinking, entrepreneurial folks in their 20s have become a bit disenchanted with some of the other options for them in the tech sector. They're not sure that those companies are pushing forward in a way for humanity that they see as quite as appealing. And then they see once they discover space and they see the really wonderful things that space can contribute to life on Earth, they think that's maybe a place to apply this, this training and these skills that I have. And the more we can talk about it in that way, the more talent we bring in. I think. Do you think that some of the renewed interest in space stems from Artemis and kind of humanity, humanity's collective look to go back to the moon? Or what do you think were those points that led to this sort of resurgence of an, of an interest in people wanting to lend their expertise to building it? Oh, Brendan, you can ship, chime in on this too. My, I, I don't, I wouldn't have pointed to Artemis first. And partly that's because the successes in Artemis have been relatively recent. And so mm -hmm. I think you know, these decisions of the students I'm talking about were made years ago. Oh, great. SpaceX is really the dominant thing people talk about as just yeah. having changed the way they think about it. And, and the SpaceX effect more broadly at creating all these incredible startups, I, you know, that's really the prime mover. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say two factors. Definitely agree with that, that it was SpaceX, but I also think that it was this kind of historical and cultural backdrop where we've seen what can happen when we go boldly to space, uh, we've seen what is possible. We, we know that there is right potential there, um, but we've also become accustomed to kind of the slow, lethargic pace of the space industry. We're not surprised to, when we're disappointed um, by the progress and delays um, of uh, space programs. But I think just like the shot in the arm that missions like, uh, especially SpaceX's uh, early missions, like the 20 teens, uh, for me personally, seeing the Falcon Heavy um, re-landing, that inspired me to write my uh, undergraduate thesis on uh, space economics, which is part of the reason why I'm here today. Um, so I definitely think that it's the combination of this long-lasting excitement about the potential of space and that, wow, like, look at what is going on now. Um, so, yeah. And this the pro proliferation of not just only SpaceX, but 
all these other companies that are yeah. providing real value. I, I, I can't say enough good things about Planet um, and all the great things for people who are mm-hmm. uh, like interested in conservation and, and really making the world uh, a more sustainable place. Um, I think there's tons of sources of uh, inspiration in this space. Yeah, I think that aspect of remote sensing is a really critical one because it touches everything from floods, fires, droughts, you know, uh, planning of agricultural crops. And I actually just participated in a U.S. Chamber event about two weeks ago, and it was setting that backdrop from a policy perspective to realize all of the ways that remote sensing and data can be utilized and in a variety of surprising surprising ways for people. Um, but it was really eye-opening for me too, because I thought that I knew. And then from listening to the experts who actually do it on a daily basis, it's just so much broader than that. Well, I think it's also interesting to look at, at our capabilities yeah. and associate that with the awareness, certainly in a younger generation and their concern over sustainability and climate control. Uh, certainly, I think everything from, you know, the uh, the overview effect forward certainly has helped inform that opinion. But as we're all, you know, living with 115 degree heat that all of a sudden is the new yeah. norm, I think there's more association with how is space helping to not only inform us, but solve some of these issues. And then from a SpaceX standpoint, I'd, I'd love to see something that might show what is the recruiting STEM enrichment from, you know, shooting a red convertible into space. Talk about capturing the generation, you know, the imagination of a younger group of people. And Kelly, I was just going to build on the point you made about the um, event you were just at. That is such an essential part of making the most of this next stage, which is getting folks in the room brainstorming, batting around ideas about how to use these data, right? Like it's just, we all, we know that good business plans, good ideas are spread far and wide. And having just a few people think about this is not going to work. We need everybody, including everyone listening to this program, to think about how their organization might use earth observation data or better, you know, satellite internet connectivity. Like how, how could that change the way that your business does its work or a company you might start? Oh, yeah. Well, and especially with the proliferation of satellites that we're starting to see and will continue to see it from a trend perspective in low Earth orbit and geostationary, it's just going to have this exponential growth and we're going to have so much data and it's going to be ubiquitous to everything we do, but it's how you quantify it, how you qualify it, how you capture it, how you use it. Um, it, It's it's a really good entrepreneurial area because in a lot of ways, the sky's the limit. To your point, Matt, it's just the creativity of the use case. Yeah. One quick thing to add to that, um, one of the biggest um, takeaways I had from the space report, I circled it like six times, was the um, uh, chart that you had uh, on uh, growth of Earth observation data and the different subsectors within that that were growing and uh, seeing the slice of uh, big data. So, you know, uh, firms like Google and people who are doing additional AI ML processing went from being almost nothing a few years ago to bigger and bigger. And then that, I think, is where we're going to see the real difference. So um, I was glad to see that um, bear out in space report. Yeah. Since SpaceX has come up a lot, um, I think it's a, it's a good segue into this next section I want to talk about, about the intrinsically intertwined role of the public-private partnership. And Matt, I know that you've done a lot of lecturing and research about NASA's role in building the space economy. Um, 
But SpaceX was a really interesting example of how commercial companies can step in in the absence of government. We saw this with the war in Ukraine, where as a the United States and for diplomatic and other geopolitical issues, um, we couldn't intervene, but they shot up some Starlink satellites, gave connectivity around. But what was an also interesting trend in that is that um, because of that conflict and Starlink's involvement, we started to see a lot more space investment across the board from different countries, realizing that space is this critical infrastructure, it's a critical asset. Um, and I think it goes to, to a broader conversation that the public and private is really intertwined. When I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, um, they'll sometimes say, I wanna be completely privately funded, I don't want to interact with the government and I have to remind them that the government is a validator, the government's a customer and the government's a regulator. And so um, I'd love for you to touch upon that because it is this consideration for new businesses to realize how they are very collaborative and they influence a push and pull from each other's strategies. Great. Well, this is one of my favorite topics. Yeah. So I can't wait to dig into this with you all. I, I mean, it's what got me interested in space. Your intro of me was very kind. And also, I'm sure your listeners were puzzled because what is a tax economist doing thinking about space? And it's all because of this role of government and right. relative to the private sector. And and I think you put it perfectly, Kelly, which is that they are intertwined. And and that's on purpose. I mean, if you, if you sort of went way back to first principles, Econ 101, we know very much that there are situations in which the market is the right way to run things, it's efficient, it's innovative, it's dynamic, and we should just let the market ride. But that those situations don't always hold, and there are good reasons to get the government involved. And the classic example is a public good, and the classic example of a public good is national defense. And, and so even the example you just gave with SpaceX, like, yes, it's incredibly valuable to have private commercial players complementing what we can only have public sector players doing, which is the national security side of space. And so they will always be intertwined and they each have their own roles to play, um, the public and private sector. And and that we can talk a lot more about how those can be complements. I'll just mention two quick things that your, your question brought to mind, which is um, one, you know, how do we think about if you're a startup and you're trying to think about the commercial versus public mix, I think one of the rules of thumb that a couple of different entrepreneurs have talked with us about is what they call the 50-50 rule. Okay. So basically, the ideal is to have your business split half and half uh, commercial and public. And, and it's for exactly the reasons you said. It's great to have the sort of reliable uh, public money, but also the seal of approval that it gives and sort of uh, all of that that comes with it. But it can be kind of burdensome to deal only with public sector customers who have their own uh, constraints. And so it's nice to have that commercial uh, mix coming in as well. Um, and then I think the other question that you were getting at is, you know, is the government getting the mix of those things just right, uh, you know, in terms of how much it thinks about working with commercial companies? And and here I think we're in a very dynamic situation. I mean, uh, we're learning when the commercial sector is the right approach and when a more centralized approach is still probably the right way to go. And in particular, we're noticing that, I think, on the national security side. I mean, it's I was noticing in the report the the quantity of uh, public spending that's civilian versus national security uh, is shifting a bit. And uh, it's no surprise to any of us that there's a lot of money going into the national security side right now. And that's unfortunate in a broad sense, but we know that it will have implications for the technological development and demand generation within the overall sector. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you picked up on that that question because it is um, it is a critical point because for a lot of these commercial space companies, you know, sometimes they think that it might be easier to get private funding um, as opposed to trying to go through just the processes of the U.S. government or the European Space Agency or you know these other agencies that that um, put out solicitations and sometimes also from the startup world the government process of applying and waiting two to three months and then waiting, you know, for your development timeline can can sometimes kill the process of developing tech because it, they haven't considered just what that lengthy, what the lengthy timeline looks like. Leslie, did you have a, a point to pile on? I see you nodding a lot. Oh, no, I, I'm just agreeing. Um, certainly, uh, with everything you've said about how NASA can be a validator. Yeah. Um, one of the things, and again, Brendan and Matt will be able to speak to this in, in greater detail and greater finesse, but one of the things we are recognizing in the last couple of years as there has been a little bit of tumult is that investors who are willing to recognize the long-term needs of space investment, they are coming in with much more of a business sense. They're wanting to look at these startups it's not necessarily, you know, we have this cool idea on how to get into space. It's, it's becoming much more pragmatic. Yes. So, um, you know, it, certainly if you can wind your way through government processes and, and contracts, um, it may be a bit more of a, an endurance, but I also think you would end up having more support. You know, there are NASA offices specifically for trying to encourage this. Um, I suppose that on the other end of that spectrum, the the easy dream is you you know you walk into a bar in Silicon Valley, strike up a conversation, and you know there's your multi million dollar investment. Um, it's a really critical point that you made because I think that we started to see this trend. I mean, certainly. It has been going that way because we all saw the rise and fall of SPACs, but even with um, what happened with Virgin Orbit, right, where I think that sort of sent ripples through the industry because technologically it worked. The business model was not sustainable. And I think we've moved to a point, and Brendan, I know you and I have talked about this before, where we are beyond hype in a lot of ways. And to be able to get investors interested, you have to be able to to position yourself in the future orientation of the growth of space, but also show some real tangible ROI and, and the business path and that there is an art to that. And another point, Leslie, that you said, um, I worked with a startup a couple years ago who was going after government uh, or sorry, private investment. And the first question that every investor asked is who, what government agency are you working with? Do you have any government contracts? Are, is there any program manager that's interested? And it was eye-opening to me to realize, to your point, that was a validation. It was a, it was a checkbox in the right direction. Well, and I think another aspect of that is also the, the long-term nature of what the government contracts tend to be. Yeah. It's, it's less subjective. Uh, it's not as exposed to you know, the whims of an investor who decides he or she needs to move that money around. So there definitely are advantages in that. Here's a, here's a question I want to throw out from the chat because um, they were, as we're talking about private investment and government investment. So someone asked what the prospects are for funding private space companies. And I'm curious from your perspective, instead of the prospects, what kind of advice 
would you give a company that is looking to go after investment? We obviously talked about considering the government as a customer somewhere in the strategy as a stakeholder aspect, but are there other glaring things you've seen that you would impart wisdom on? Well, let me weigh in a little bit on that. So I, I think as part of this discussion on public and private interactions and when the, when the market makes the most sense, I'm fascinated by how financial markets are trying to understand their role in space. So if you think it's very hard basically to be a space investor, I mean, there's so, first of all, there's always technological uncertainty. There's also all this market uncertainty, which often you don't have as an investor. I mean, we don't really know if there's a space economy. We know there is, but you know, if you're an investor, where is it going to be? How fast is it going to grow? You're actually helping to create that path. So it's, there's a whole other layer. And then the timelines are longer than they're used to uh, in, in conventional VC in particular, venture capital in particular. And, and so one way to see the SPAC boom and bust is like as a growing pain for the financial sector trying to figure out how it can get money to these startups to get them over these technological and market development uncertainty humps. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure that it was, well, let's just say we learned a lot of lessons from the SPAC boom and bust. Uh, and, and, I, and so when we talk to startups today and, and students who are thinking of doing startups, the way I describe it is that, look, space investors are getting, you know, they've been, many of them have been burned uh, or have had bad experiences and they're getting more and more sophisticated. And that doesn't mean picky. I mean, it does, but it doesn't just mean picky. Yeah. It means that also they, they understand the sector better. So if you can really come to them and explain, here's the pain point for other companies in the sector, back to our, you know, specialization um, point, or here's the thing that is missing in the growth trajectory of this particular subsector, I have the technology that can solve that problem, but also I have a way to take it to market that actually, you know, you can see who those customers will be. Investors, I think, are very willing to still get behind those companies. You just have to know what your business plan is. Are there certain areas that you've seen have commanded more investment or at least give a bit more certainty and runway to investors? Well, I mean, Brendan, please feel free to jump in here too. I will go back to, I think that one, and, and when you talk to space companies, they all talk about this as well, is that there's some things that just don't work that well inside space companies, partly because they haven't had a lot of business people in them. They've had yeah. mostly technologists. And so even some of the sort of nuts and bolts software inside, whether it's tracking contracts with government agencies or supply chains or things like that, that are you know, whatever the shovels and picks of the gold rush type of analogy, like how can you be on that side of the, that, that, those are the kinds of companies we've seen pretty successfully attract attention. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the companies that really get me excited are the ones that know the industry and know its history well enough to say, this is something that has been a point of stagnation because it's just been done this way since the eighties or seventies and just no one's thought to do it differently because there's only been a a handful of people doing it. Um, people who attack those problems using a new way of doing it, um, a faster, cheaper, better way of doing it, I think it's really exciting. It's that kind of sub-specialization that when you put all of those different kinds of companies attack those problems together, what you get is a, a better access to space, uh, cheaper access to space, and then people can build on the backs of that and do all kinds of incredible things to really spark the kind of space economy that we want. Um, so I think that's probably what gets me most excited. Um, 
I'll just end by saying not all of those opportunities are created equally. Um, I think there are, there are some uh, like specialized uh, companies that have done really well, and then there are others that are realizing that um, even if you become the best at doing this particular thing or building this particular component, um, it's just the industry is where it is right now, and um, that's not always going to translate into um, business success, at least not right away. One of the ways, to your point, that I've heard it summarized is that this is not your grandfather's space industry. I've heard people say that over and over again, that while there is legacy and heritage, and obviously the Apollo era had tremendous implications in building up where we are today, where we're moving forward is very different. And um, you know, to end our conversation, I, I want to get into this point that, Brenda, you kind of just made about forecasting and excitement and where these opportunities lie. And I know that you and Matt have done a lot of work creating this framework of thinking, like moving beyond the statistics and the data to actually think about where the opportunities are, how do you think about growth? And for our listeners, you know, if they're thinking about becoming part of this dynamic market, what should they consider? Like, how do they qualify the quant? That's a great question. Brynn, do you want me to take a first shot at it? Okay. That's a great question. Thank you, Kelly. And I mean, this is where the excitement comes in. And, and whatever, 20 minutes ago, uh, we mentioned that there is also the, the passion and the excitement of space, right? Like we, a lot of this conversation is very pragmatic. It's also important to keep the big stuff in there because that's what pulls people into the sector. But, but you asked for a framework and I will, of course, because I'm an economist, <laughs> tell you about supply and demand. <laughs> supply and demand is the, is the, you know, it is, there's a reason it is the standard starting point for economics. And it is the way that has helped me the most to understand some of the trends we're seeing and where they might head. And, and just very briefly for your listeners, the, the key thing that I would point to is that the advances with SpaceX and Planet and all the other technologies that we've been talking about can be thought of as just pushing out the supply curve, basically lowering the costs of doing lots and lots of activity, which should cause us to move down a demand curve. There should be more and more businesses that make sense and that people want to be able to pursue and fund. The, the persistent question though, within the space sector, and if you go to space conferences, like all of us do, is where's the demand? Like, <laughs> like we know we've got the supply, but how are we gonna use these technologies and where's the big business case gonna come from? And so when I think about what's most exciting, there's basically two things I think of. One is, can you create a company or a product or a service that uses some of that new technology in a way that we haven't thought to use it before? So we talked about using Earth observation data. Help other companies figure out where, how they get value from all these new capabilities. Uh, that is really, that's, I think of that as moving down a demand curve. And then the other one is how can we shift out the demand curve? Meaning how can we generate totally new sources of demand? And, and for there, I'm a bit of an optimist, perhaps an outlier on things like commercial stations. Like, can we find whole new ways to really expand the scope of the sector? And, I'm in that and I, think that are still, yeah, I think those are still important for us to nurture as we nurture the more near-term uh, opportunities. Astounding well agreement, Leslie, Brendan. Absolutely. And I think, um, it, I think one of the things that is really especially fascinating is almost kind of this I don't want to say unintended consequences because I'm sure there were brilliant people who envisioned this, you know, after Arthur C. Clarke, but 
One of the things that I, I really love and that we came across in this latest edition of the Space Report is, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope launched. One of the reasons it's so successful is all of the engineering that went behind creating a really, really stable environment for the, the scientific equipment on board. As part of that development, there was a lot of work done for how measurements were taken. Hmm. NASA subcontractor sub helped develop that technology. That technology is now involved in eye equipment that is helped, has helped develop new technology that measures the human eye for LASIK surgery. Yeah. There are now more than 20 million people who've had LASIK surgery that has had a higher level of success and accuracy because of space technology. Some of the microgravity research on the International Space Station. I mean, talk about the everyday level. There are, there are now laundry products that are developed that are more cohesive. And that, that colloid, colloid research has numerous other applications in fluid dynamics. So that's one of the things where I think we all get to geek out is really understanding however fledgling the, the economy is. I think the more we have those conversations and the more we help people understand yeah. the pull down effect that there will continue to be interest and value seen. Yeah. Last thing I'll add on that is that one of the reasons I think to, for optimism about the space economy is because given this transition of fully public to more mixed is that with one of the beautiful things about a market is that there's beauty in the machine. It will pop things out that are totally unexpected. Um, people will come up with creative ways to solve a problem that turns out not only make it cheaper or more efficient, but are actually hugely useful in all these other ways. One example that comes to mind is relativity, where they're trying to do a lot of 3D printing for um, a rocket, but it turns out that uh, 3D printing uh, large uh, metal structures could be pretty useful if, if they can do it successfully for a whole number of other things. And that's just a drop in the bucket as far as all the hundreds and hundreds of space companies doing really exciting, innovative things. Um, but to encourage them to have them uh, have an opportunity to succeed and innovate the way that they do, you need to have a strong market. You need people to fund them, you need people to know the regulatory environment. We need this whole, we need it to be a big tent full of really smart people. And um, I, I think that the most recent space report shows that. There's progress being made. There's more and more people joining, and um, it's a great time to be in the industry. Agreed, and that's a really good point to end on because when I always get asked like the why space question, which I know all of us do, but I, I do mention you know that because space is hard, because space has resources, because space has really smart people doing difficult challenges, we are going to get these Leslie to your point secondary and tertiary effects of new industries, new products, new subcomponents, new ways of thinking that will be pervasive, not just in the space industry, but also really impact terrestrial life and human life in ways that aren't even related. Um, so it does impact us all and it is our collective, um, not opportunity, well, opportunity, but also kind of responsibility, right? To, to get people mm -hmm. to self-select in and see themselves in the future and contribute their brilliance and their great ideas. And I, I love what you guys are doing at Harvard because you really are 
bringing up the next generation. So thank you for um, for spending your time with us, but also for bringing you know the next gen into our into our world that will be on these calls probably in you know three, five, seven years. So I want to thank all three of you, uh, Brendan, Matt, and Leslie. I certainly have learned a lot from this conversation. I know our viewers have as well. Um, to everyone watching, thank you so much for spending your time with us as well. If we did not get to your questions um, during the live conversation, we'll be sure to go back into the chat and please stay tuned for future Vector conversations. And please remember that there's a place for everyone in the future of space. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly.